Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. My name is Greg. This is my first season. We have a very, very special guest today. She is, get ready for this, an author, a blogger, motivational speaker. She's a marathoner, an ultra runner, and podcast host. She's the host of her own podcast, the two-time award-winning Tough Girl Podcast, where she interviews inspirational female explorers, adventurers, athletes, and everyday women who have overcome great challenges. Her podcast is listened to in 174 countries around the world and has passed 1 million downloads. Most impressively, and for me, because I've always had a fascination with this race, she completed the grueling Marathon des Sables in April 2016, which is the equivalent to running six marathons in six days across the unforgiving Saharan desert. This race is often called the toughest foot race in the world, so I'm hoping she can tell me all about this. She also has a book based on this race called Tough Girl Sahara Challenge, which you can find as Amazon. And don't worry, I'll be posting all the links to our YouTube channel and everything else. So without further ado, please help me welcome Miss Sarah Williams. Hi, Sarah, how are you? Oh, I'm fantastic, thank you. Although a little bit, of, I always feel super embarrassed when like introductions are done. I'm just like sort of, I think it's a very British thing to be really like cringy and like, oh no, <laughs> stop talking, stop talking. <laughs> but, I, but I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, very good. Okay. Well, yeah. So thanks again for coming on and sharing your story. My listeners are going to uh, love your story. We usually start off with a bit of an origin story. And I read in your book that growing up, you weren't, you weren't much of a running uh, runner. You didn't think much of it, correct? Correct. I, I don't think I, I used to do running as part of like, you know, sports for, for fitness. So I used to play like hockey and used to play lacrosse. But when I played those sports, I'd sort of like hang around the gold. So I didn't really have to do that much running, but I could shoot and get all the glory. So yeah, not a massive amount of running sort of growing up. I mean, obviously we had to do cross country, but that was more of a forced experience where you're sent out wearing not very many clothes and it's the middle of winter and it's cold and you've just got to run a couple of miles. But in those days, it seemed like a, a horrendous distance uh, to run. So yeah, it wasn't until sort of leaving university when I got sort of more into running and I started doing a half marathon with my sister. We did the Liverpool half marathon, but then I ended up moving down to London and fitness and exercise sort of went out of the, went out of the window when I started sort of my proper corporate job and started work, working sort of all hours that was possible. And then I only really got into running I'd say a couple of years later and it was it was during the summertime and I'd actually run out of money and it was it was on the Monday and I wasn't going to be paid until Friday and I had food and my rent was paid and everything was good but I had no money for transport and this was like well how am I going to get to work and it, I only sort of live like maybe three miles from the office an hour and an hour and I thought well, why don't I run and so that's literally how I got back into running I started to run to and from work for that week really enjoyed it was super productive it was a great way of getting to the office before everybody else showering changing starting work and then when you run home you end up de-stressing and feeling super relaxed when you're at home and then I just sort of continued with with my running journey and then I signed up to do the London Marathon that year and then I ended up running London Marathon every year for five years and it's just sort of gradually evolved and you know you mentioned the Marathon de Saab so I ended up doing that in, uh, in 2016 which was you know uh, a little bit further than a marathon uh, a little bit more challenging due to the desert conditions and the heat and the sunshine and, and obviously running multiple marathons back to back carrying everything you need on your back so that's a that's a little bit of an origin story of how my running started. Did your Co-workers at the time, were they envious of you or did they think you were crazy for running to and from work every day? 
uh, a little bit of a mix. A few people obviously thought I was a little bit crazy, but there were quite a few other runners there who sort of got it and understood it. But it was just a great way to actually start the day. You know, you wake up, you, you're in your running kit, you run for you know 27, 30 minutes or so, you get to the office, you have your shower, and I don't know, you, you get obviously that endorphin hit, so you, and you already feel really productive because you've already achieved, you've already done your exercise, and so for me, it was just a really great way to start the start the day, and you know, a great way to to finish. And so, I mean, I was I was very fortunate, you know, at at, um, at the offices, you know, we did have all the facilities, so it was easy to shower and change, and I had like a hair dryer and hair straighteners there, and you know, I was able to keep like all my footwear and quite a bit of clothing there as well so it was relatively easy to do it wasn't you know that you're running and then not being able to shower or anything but yeah especially during the summer months it was absolutely gorgeous yeah winter running okay so I'm from Montreal so the only thing I hate about winter running is all the layers (laughs) you have to put on and take off so do do you mind that or or you know it doesn't bother you putting on layers does it I think the UK is probably the it's not probably that cold maybe like our winters I don't think are quite as extreme as yours and so even you know running during did I can I'm just trying to remember if I ran during the winter months I probably did a little bit but I'm definitely more of a sunshine person and a heat person than a cold person so yeah I think as long as you've got like a good waterproof jacket some nice gloves to wear and know that you can get warm and dry whenever you get somewhere it's absolutely fine. Now, before I get into the Marathon des Sables, because because of you, you have so many accomplishments, I just want my listeners to know you also have a master's, okay, in women and gender studies from Lancaster University. So since I work at Concordia University, I'm, I'm kind of uh, jealous of people with graduate degrees. <laughs> I'm planning I'm planning to get one, don't have one yet. Were you running throughout? Did you have time to run when you were earning your graduate degree? Well, no, so that that's quite interesting, really. So I just, I just come off the back of finishing the Appalachian Trail. So I just threw hiked the Appalachian Trail, which um, it's 2000. 200 miles it starts in springer mountain georgia heads up through 14 states in america all the way up to mount katahdin in maine and it's the equivalent of walking up and down mount everest like 16 and a half times and i put quite a bit of time pressure on myself to do that challenge and most people take four or five months maybe even six months to walk walk the trail or to through hike the trail and i ended up doing it in 100 days so which was pretty rapid you know averaging about 22 miles 22 miles a day i again i was solo i was unsupported supported so I was doing my own my own resupply but that physically took a massive toll on my body so when I finished that challenge I'd lost like all my muscle mass I'd lost all my strength I wasn't I actually struggled to walk um, after that point so I finished that in September 2017 and actually then started my master's like a couple of weeks later so for for pretty much the duration of my master's I wasn't really I wasn't running at all I was struggling to to walk so I was actually more like in like physio and rehab trying to build back my build back my strength and so it was more sort of spending time at the gym and so I actually stopped running for quite a few years actually because I had this pro- <laughs> this is like how much detail do you want I, I ended up having like a, a little bit of nerve damage behind my left knee which has sort of like shortened the nerve and so I couldn't straighten my left leg properly and it took maybe about a year to like to figure this out you know and see physios and all of this sort of stuff but when your body is dealing with like a little bit of injury what can happen is it can start overcompensating 
compensating in different areas. So because I'd gone over on my left ankle multiple times on the Appalachian Trail, my knee had started to, to protect the, the ankle. My knee had started to take over the role of what the ankle does. And then that impacted on like my glutes and my whole like posterior chain. So I was in quite a bit of recovery. And so I didn't really get back into running until actually it was 2021 when I did something called the March Daily mile yeah I probably I probably peaked after doing the after doing the marathon um the Saabs in in 2016 so yeah it's, it's been quite a while since since I've done sort of any sort of serious distances I focus now more on sort of uh strength and, uh, and I do quite a lot of like cycling and hiking and, and those types of things so the running has taken a back seat let's get into the marathon des Sables that is a race comprised of six stages over seven days fourth stage is around 50 miles, 80 kilometers. <laughs> the fifth stage is a full marathon, 26.2. And the sixth is about nine to 13 miles. Okay. So you're given about, I think 32, not only that, like you're given a time limit to complete this race between 32 and 36 hours, I believe. And then let's talk about temperatures, the extreme temperatures, possible daytime highs reaching 125 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, nighttime lows. So I'm really curious what, like what compels someone to put themselves like through that hell because <laughs> aside from the fun I, I it must be torture it must it must be hell no I mean I why would anyone want to do it and I'm envious don't get me wrong but I'm just curious what um what what what, what makes it what makes you tick basically that made you want to do that <laughs> reasons really so I'd started um I started up tough girl challenges which is my company it's all about you know motivating and inspiring women and girls it's about sharing these stories it's about encouraging women and girls to get fit and active to travel and explore to live their best lives and one of the things that I was very conscious of is you know we all have these comfort zones and when you stretch that comfort zone so for example when you take running you know maybe your first comfort zone is running your first 5k and then once you've completed your 5k you push on you might you might decide to do the next challenge maybe a 10k then you sign up for a half marathon then you sign up for a marathon and as you sort of evolve through these different stages your comfort zone grows along with you now I'd obviously you know I'd at that point been doing a lot of running and so my comfort zone I was very comfortable with a marathon distance I was running it every year 26.2 miles it didn't scare me I knew what work I needed to do I knew what training I needed to do I knew what was going to happen to my body at 18 miles at 20 miles at 24 miles at 26 miles I knew how I was going to feel before during and after I knew that I could do it. I had that internal confidence because I had done it before and you know, for, for me with Tough Girl Challenges, I wanted to launch launch it onto the scene and sort of prove to everybody that, you know, look, I'm an adventurer. I can challenge myself. I can step outside my comfort zone. So I needed to do something that would give me those butterflies, which would stretch me. And so, you know, mar I'd done the marathon distance before, but what was next? And I'd heard about this race. And, you know, the first time I heard about it, you know, I had initially the same thoughts as everybody else. But that is crazy. Like, how can you deal with the heat and carrying everything you need on your back? You know, why would you want to do it? And the more I heard about it, I think that seed got planted in my head and I started to do more research. And I started to ask myself that question, you know, can I do this? Like, would I be able to do this? Would I be fit enough? Could I get myself strong enough? Would I be able to endure? Would I would I suffer through these in inhospitable, inhospitable environments? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, yes, let's do this. And then, you know, once I'd signed up for that race, I got those feelings in my stomach that people get when they step outside their comfort zone because there is nerves and there is excitement. But then this is when it gets 
interesting because this is when you start doing your training that you start doing your your preparation you start doing your running you start figuring out your kit your gear your nutrition your hydration you know pulling all the pieces together you start thinking about the mental side of the challenge because it is a mental challenge as well as a physical challenge and so yeah it was a couple of reasons I wanted to test myself physically mentally I wanted to help launch tough girl challenges I wanted to prove to other people that I was tough and that I could you know set myself a big challenge and then go out and achieve it and it's one of the the best things that I've ever done in in my life and (laughs) I like I loved it like I mean there were there were moments when I was out there I remember this particular moment it was on um it was on the long stage so running 52 miles and and I was stood I'd been going for maybe 10-12 hours and it was just as the sun was starting to go down and I was stood at the top of these sort of these sand dunes and I could look out and all you could see in all directions is it's just these undulating sand dunes and just desert everywhere and it was magical there is something magical about being in the desert and I remember being stood at the top and I tightened each strap on my backpack I took my salt tablets I you know took a sip of my sort of tepid and semi-warm water and I remember thinking to myself this is what you've trained for and then I just sort of unleashed and I just started running downhill which is obviously fantastic because you're going downhill you're just sort of going with the flow of the sand dunes and I just got endorphin rush after endorphin rush just feeling incredible and amazing and that sort of that memory stays with me I I always think about it like just thinking of how powerful I felt how strong I felt and how ready I was to continue running I still had probably another 20 miles to go I mean it got slightly it got slightly worse a couple of hours later when it got dark and then I was like I hit like the I hit like the wall and my body and my mind started to to argue with itself and I started to to doubt myself and to ask myself stupid questions you know why did you think you could do this when your feet hurt and did you really think you were tough enough and strong enough and and it was that mental battle inside your own mind about well can I keep going and how do you get through the checkpoints and getting through the checkpoints and you know pushing on and seeing a finish line and and knowing that even though it looked like I could touch it it was actually still probably two three hours away so you know incredible highs incredible lows but just a phenomenal phenomenal experience and if anybody gets the opportunity to to go and to do a challenge like this then I would say grab it go for it take advantage of it and just give yourself permission to just go out there and have fun and enjoy yourself because it is you know don't get me wrong it's it's super tough it is called the toughest sort of race on earth but it also it really gives you self-confidence and self-belief when you cross that finish line and you get that medal around your neck i understand how you can train like the miles and the distance but what in your what in your training prepared you for the heat you can't just go to Morocco four months before the race and start running in the desert, right? Well, you could. But what I ended up doing is I'm actually very fortunate. My my older brother lives over in Australia. And so I, I flew out to, to go stay with him and his family. And they live, they live in Melbourne, right by the beach. And so I headed over in January. So and their, their sort of December, January, February, March is their summertime. So I was over there during their summer. And Australia were having an incredible heat wave at that point. And I, by the way, I, I'm a massive sun person. Like, I love the heat, like 30 plus degrees. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. It makes me super happy. I'm like, give me all the sunshine, give me all the heat. So I was very fortunate that I... Um, 
that I was training out in Australia during a heat wave. So that was fantastic. So it would come to like 12 o'clock or one o'clock in the afternoon and everyone else would be indoors in the shade and the air conditioning. And I'd be like, oh, this is brilliant. Let me go out for my run now during the hottest part of the day. But, you know, there, there are a lot of things that you can do, even if you're UK based, like it, or oh, sorry, not UK based, or if you're not based in a hot country, you know, using things like a sauna, doing things like Bikram yoga, like hot yoga, you know, doing that sort of, a, you know, 90 minute routine. The other tips that, um, that I've heard people use as well is having a hot bath and also having like a glass of red wine with it. So, you know, there's lots of different things that you can do to try and build up your tolerance to the heat. But using, you know, using a sauna or doing Bikram yoga two, three weeks beforehand is, is one of the best things. Or if you can, you know, afford to go away somewhere hot in the weeks leading up to it, then, um, you know, that's obviously a little bit of a game changer because it is, it's super tough going from a very cold environment to a really sort of hot environment if you're not used to 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 those extremes in temperature when you started out the race because not only is it grueling like if i something if i did hypothetically the fear in me would be what if i reached stage five and my body broke down right near the end i mean did that cross your mind at all like not finishing and getting so close no not at all for me actually just getting to the start of the race was my achievement because what what had actually happened is I'd actually signed up to do the race in 2015 when I when I started Tough Girl Challenges and I I messed it up like I messed up my training I messed everything up I I massively overtrained and I wasn't even well enough to get to the start line of the of the Marathon de Sades in 2015 so you have like um, you need to get like a doctor's sign off you need to get like ECGs done all these things and I was basically just before Christmas I was like bed bound I was my weight was falling period had stopped I started to get really bad acne on my face and my shoulders. My hair was falling out. My left eye was starting to deteriorate. Like physically, I was in one of the most horrendous places I'd ever been. So I was suffering with like adrenal fatigue and chronic fatigue and all these things from the amount of training that I was doing. Because I believed that, you know, the more miles, the better, the more training, the better. My rest days consisted of yoga and swimming. And I was training like, you know, twice a day and having power naps. And yeah, I just, I ended up just completely messing it up. So by the time I got sort of fit, healthy and strong, for me, I wasn't concerned about my body breaking down. I just wanted to get to the start line, fit, strong and healthy, which is what I which is what I did. So I didn't necessarily, you know, I didn't have those fears. And I think for me, it was more a case of I just wanted to enjoy it. And I think there's a thing when you enter these races where people talk about, you know, are you competing or are you completing? Like, is your goal just to finish, just to finish the event? Or are you competing? You're wanting to get, you know, a top 10, a top 200, um, you know, whatever placing. And for me, it wasn't about the position. It was just about completing. It was just about doing it for me and being happy and enjoying it and realizing what a privilege it was to be out there in this environment doing something that I'd worked hard for that I trained for and that I was that I was enjoying but you know managing fears though this is part of like the mental preparation like figuring out well what are your personal fears before you do the race is it that fear of your body breaking down it's like and then sort of delving deeper into it so why what aspects of your body are you particularly worried about is it is it your feet is it your shoulders is it just 
Is it lack of nutrients? Is it not being able to keep food down? Like, you know, really digging into the details to, to understand A, you know, what happens to your body in these types of environments and B, how you can manage that situation. So it's something that I've done a lot of is, is around that mental side, like, you know, managing fears and putting practical steps in to, to help sort of alleviate these fears or to to recognize them acknowledge them and then be able to move on from them well despite the attitude that you you mentioned you either complete or compete despite going in with the completing attitude you still finished pretty impressively if you ask me you were the ninth british woman overall that year 45th woman out of 159 women you placed 443rd out of 1108 competitors that started with only only 973 finished you completed the race time in 47 hours good god 50 minutes and 46 seconds that's pretty impressive for i imagine if you had went in with the goal to compete i mean lord i mean i i think this is incredible the uh how you placed oh thank you but I think a lot of that actually a lot of that came down to the long stage so for me I always knew like one of my mental strategies was on the long stage so you you actually get like I think you get like two days to do it or 30 36 hours to do the long stage in and I'd from all my research and my preparation I knew that I wanted to do that race in one like that stage in one go I didn't want to stop at a checkpoint I didn't want to you know carry on the following day I wanted to get to camp as soon as possible so you know you started I think at 8 30 in the morning and I finished at like 1 52 um the, the following morning and then the, you know so I overtook so many people during the long stage because I was also very tactical about going through checkpoints so what can happen if you have five or six checkpoints you get to a checkpoint and you stop and you fill your water and you have a little chat and you fill with your shoes or you stop and you sit down and and then suddenly it's like 10 15 minutes have gone which yeah in the grand scheme of thing isn't a huge amount of time but if you're doing that five or six you know every single checkpoint you're wasting 20 minutes that really does accumulate pretty quickly and so before I got to any checkpoint mentally I knew exactly what I needed to do and I also I was not hanging around so I would get to the checkpoint I'd have the water you know, I'd undo the my bottles, so I was ready to fill my water up. I'd go grab my salt tablets, you know, have them. Once my water was in my bottles and I'd finished it and put the put it in the trash, I was out of there. So my transition through the checkpoints was super quick. There was no messing about. Like and I really psyched myself up before getting to a checkpoint. And and even on um you know that long stage, like you know, the, the middle of the night, you know, you could have easily stopped and not carried on. And I just thought, no, I have to keep going. And, I, you know, I was the first person in my tent back. And I think maybe one or two other people joined me that evening. And then other people then were, were coming in in dribs and drabs throughout the rest of the day. And I think that's just even tougher because not only have they been out in the sun all the day, they slept rough the night before, at, you know, one of the checkpoints. And then they're in the sun again, you know, continuing on. And so that that really sort of massively propelled me me forward but you've got to be also you've got to be wary of something I don't know if you've ever experienced like goal creep so you start out initially with your goal so you're like you know I want to complete it and then when you start doing it, you're thinking oh I'm doing pretty well maybe maybe I'll aim for a for for a, for a top half or a top 200 
and then you change the goals as you as you go and that can be quite dangerous or quite can affect you mentally when you change your goals especially if you don't start achieving them so sometimes you've got to be very clear with your goal or even set three goals so you know right you know I'm going to set my a goal which is to complete the race be happy be strong be fit and healthy when I cross the finish line maybe having a b goal do you know yeah do you know I'd like to be in the top half of the race or maybe having like a seagull um whatever it is so that you don't suffer with this with this goal creepers as it happens but yeah I mean I'm really pleased with my performance you know and and I know some other people who've who've done marathon the salves and you know they just hated it it was horrendous it's the worst thing that they've ever done they've ever experienced and for me like it's just the opposite it's one of the best things I've ever done I I loved it you know met amazing people out there the desert was so stunning and beautiful and it's amazing to see what your body can do when you when you train it and and you push yourself you push yourself to to some dark places to carry on uh to carry on through and to get that medal around your neck as if i didn't think this race was crazy enough this is probably an insignificant detail but i watched the uh, one hour uh documentary on fiona oaks on amazon which Mm -hmm. who was also a guest on your podcast and i think you both ran the same year if i'm not mistaken was that the in addition to the six days these six marathons you have the, the backpack now the backpack obviously you know you don't want to overload but there's a there's actually a minimum amount of weight that you have to have right to once you start out your bag has to weigh a certain amount which i thought was crazy <laughs> or is that just normal that th- that's actually quite normal for for a lot of races it, it it's to ensure that competitors have do have like the amount of right the um, correct amount of like calories and food but also that people aren't juicing weight into and affecting things like their safety so during this race and a lot of races now you do have to have like minimum safety equipment whether it's so we had like spot trackers um, you had to have like a silver foil blanket you had you had to have I, well, I think we had to have money. Like, I think you had to have like a, maybe like 50 or 100 euros, something like that. So you did have to have that minimum weight, that minimum amount of calories and food. So they would check that you had a food for every day and that, that it was like two or 3,000 calories in. So, um, so yeah. So I, I, I read actually, I read another lady who was out, I think she was doing like a Himalayan ultra race and all of her kit and gear was so light. Her pack just came in too, too light. So they had to give her more weight <laughs> to make sure that she hit the, hit the minimum, right. which almost seems a little bit unfair, especially if you do have all the gear and the safety equipment, but just because you've got the ultra lighter stuff, which still does the job. But yeah, it's, it's that difficult balance. You want the, the lightest pack possible, but you want to make sure that you've got all of the equipment and food that you do actually need to complete the race safely. You mentioned uh, goal creeping before, which I have had. I have run marathons in Spartan Beast and, you know, Spartan Beast takes seven hours. So even though I've had those goals, my body says, oh yeah, here's horrific cramping. So at any time during the race, did you get like cramps in both legs or anything where, uh, I don't know, maybe your electrolyte level was low and did you get any cramps at all in your legs or your thighs? No. So uh, I was, I was, okay, I was okay while I was out moving and while I was out running because they do give you salt tablets. That's one of the only sort of things that they provide for you. And obviously everybody's different in terms of how much salt you need to consume in relation to how much you sweat. The only time I felt pain, the only time that I thought, Oh my God, I need to hit that spot button, spot tracker was after the long stage. So I crossed the finish line I'd finished and I felt amazing. And by the time I collected my water and walked to my tent, my body and my mind had realized, oh, we've stopped moving now. Okay, we can let the pain into the body 
and oh my god like the waves of pain and my muscles and my yeah everything was hurting and I was lying I was lying on the floor and there was just no comfortable position because everything was screaming in pain and it was one of those situations where I didn't know what to do because there was because there was nothing I could do like I couldn't have any more salt I couldn't have any more water I'd already eaten food so I was hydrated I was fed it was just the body being in pain and all I could think of was just go to sleep go to sleep just go to sleep when you wake up in the morning you're going to be absolutely fine and I think for those 20-30 minutes trying to get off to sleep that's when I was just like this I don't I just didn't know what to do and I felt so bad and horrendous but I'd finished like I'd finished the 52 miles but my body was just not in a good state but I was also at I just needed to sleep it would all be okay in the morning so get six or seven hours in and then in the morning it would be a different situation so yeah so that that was the only point where I felt really horrendous well, on the subject of sleep that was my my next question for listeners who don't know, you're basically signed uh, tent mates. You're, you're in the, an open air tent, really. So did you have any trouble sleeping in between stages? Did sleep come easy or were you too wired to sleep during the six days? It was, it was, I was too, I was too anxious I day the night before it started. And I was also one of these really silly ultra light racers. So, um, so most people would have like a firm arrest, but they, you know, firm arrest, the blow up air mattresses, they are actually quite expensive. And I, I couldn't afford to, to pay for that at the time. So I had this like really small square bit of foam, which was basically would lay against my uh, lay, go in the back of my backpack and lay against my back to give me a little bit of padding against my gear and equipment. And that's what I would sleep on. And so it was incredibly uncomfortable like just uh, like it barely covered like my hips and my ribs and it was that was horrendous so I was very jealous of everybody else with like like their thermo rest the only other thing that it was the cold like I really do feel the cold and so luckily like I would because I would finish quite early in comparison to some of my other tent mates I would always sort of end up in the center of the tent so I'd always have like two people next to me so I could get like the heat and the warmth from those bodies but I just I don't think I could have coped if I was on the edge of the tent and and having like the cold air sort of whipping down one side of you but yeah sleep sleep was just not yeah not a problem I think uh your your body gets to this point where it's just like right we need to recover we need to sleep and so yeah I, I slept pretty well actually like yeah <laughs> good times <laughs> and meanwhile while you're sleeping a, a sandstorm could have come in out of nowhere correct oh absolutely like and they had these there's I don't know what they're called but they're like these little spiky things out in the desert and so you'd be like you oh like they they do put carpet down but these carpets and rugs are basically your if you do if you drop food on the carpet you do not eat it they are covered in probably everything like animal feces human not human feet but like you know when people like go to the bathroom maybe don't wash their hands properly then they touch the rug and then you've got sandstorms blowing over and there's just rubbish and dirt and people's trainers are on it and so they are pretty nasty basically so you just did you wanted to be very careful like you, if you, you did not touch you tried not to touch the carpet with your hands but yeah like the little the little uh, nasty spiky things would blow in and that could be quite annoying but 
do you know what it is what it is you have a buff you put the buff down over your eyes or over your mouth and you just close your eyes curl up into a little ball and focus on what you can control you can't control the weather you can't control the sandstorm so yeah move on forget about it do what you can to to, to sleep <laughs> just so my listeners don't you know don't think this is easy there's no catering table for you if you want hot tea like you have to what what are these things called like you uh, you have to make your own fire basically a really tiny fire if you want to heat something up is that right well, yes. I mean, th- those are different options, but it, it just, I mean, you can take a stove with you. Like you can, st- you can, you know, you can carry a stove, you can carry a mug, you can, you can take whatever you want. Um, but then the to make it, but Exactly. So that's mm. the, that's the, that's the compromise. So I don't actually drink hot drinks and to be honest, I just, I don't really cook. So that was never a really big thing for me, but yeah, hundred percent people did have stoves or you could make little fires if you wanted to. But one of the things that you do have copious amounts of is like the big uh, one and a half liter plastic water bottles. So you'd be getting, you'd be going through quite a lot of them through the day. And so what you could do is you can cut the water bottles in half, put your, so I had like these freeze, not freeze dried, but yeah, like probably freeze dried meals. We put them in cold soaked it in water put the other half of the bottle over it and with the lid on if that makes sense so um filled it with water and then you can leave that out in the sun and the sun will sort of like cook and help you to rehydrate your food so there's stuff like that that you can do you also got like uh like a can of coke at one point and so there is you can make a like little what do you call it like a little stove out of a can you probably have to go on YouTube to Google it. Um, but, you know, there's loads of things like that that you can do. But it does, you know, it comes down to what what luxury items that you want to take and what you're prepared to carry. And I just I didn't carry a stove or anything like that. But then, you know, I don't drink coffee or tea. So it wasn't like I needed that to to start my day. I could probably talk to you for hours about this. <laughs> but I'll move on. One thing you wrote that I identified with in your book, you and I quote, over the years, one of the things I've come to love is proving people wrong. And that always uh, appealed to me too. Uh, if someone says I, I can do something, I'm not that interested. But the moment it suggested I can't, <laughs> and something takes over me. So does that go through your mind uh, through any of your, because right, not only did you, you know, f- finish the hardest foot race in the world the next year, as you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, you, you threw hike the Appalachian Trail and, and that's, you took 100 days to do this, correct? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it used to, I think that was probably more of maybe like an insecurity that I had, you know, because I cared what people thought about me. I wanted people to be impressed by me and impressed by what I'd done. And I did want to prove people wrong, especially, you know, for me, I I worked in banking previously. So being a female in banking, being in a very male dominated industry, being like a girly girl, you know, if you (laughs) you follow me on Instagram, you'll see that I like the color pink and, you know, I've got like long hair um, and, you, you know, I am feminine. And I think sometimes think that just because you're a girly girl, that you can't go out and do tough stuff and get dirty and get in the sand and get in the mud. And so I used to love proving people wrong. And I think that maybe had a little, you know, to do with my ego. Like I wanted people to be impressed by me and impressed by what I've done. And that was definitely the case for Marathon de Saves. And I'd say the Appalachian Trail, like, you know, setting myself that big challenge of doing it in a hundred days. But I think after the Appalachian Trail, I'd spent a huge amount of time you know, by myself in the woods, having this deep time to reflect and to really, I suppose, get to know me and who I am and, and what I love and what I need to work on. And I think after the Appalachian Trail, 
I got to the point where I didn't care what other people thought, which is a very powerful position to get to when you realize that actually I'm doing this for me. Like, it, you know, it doesn't matter what, yeah, what other people's opinions are of me. It has no bearing on how I view myself. And so I think that's definitely changed over the years. And that's an amazing place to get to. But it definitely didn't happen overnight. So, so yeah. When you say you through hike, if you can explain to our listeners what through hiking the Appalachian Trail means. Yeah, absolutely. So through hiking is when you start at point A. So on the Appalachian Trail, it's, uh, well, we can go north to south or south to north. I started down in Springer Mountain and you through hike. It just means that you carry on through hiking, walking until you get to to the finish. So, so to the other end of the trail. And so that was Mount Katahdin in Maine. So it's just one long, continuous walk that crazy people decide to do spending weeks and months out in um, out in the out in the mountains but you know obviously you know america has um lots of incredible trails but the three most popular ones are the appalachian trail which is sort of on the east coast you've got the pacific crest trail which is on the on the west coast and you've got the continental trail divide which sort of runs down the center and they all roughly go i mean not not so much the appalachian trail but the other two go from mexico to canada and uh, the appalachian trail is just a little bit shorter around 2200 miles and if you had to hypothetical question if you had to do the maradon de sab or the Appalachian Trail again, which one would you pick? Ooh, that's such a good question. I, I probably wouldn't do either. And I know, <laughs> okay. I know that sounds a bit weird, but I like I, I really enjoy doing both of them, but there's so many other things that I want to do. And so I don't I wouldn't necessarily repeat it. Like I yeah, I mean I mean American Dessabs is a very expensive race to do now. It is, you know, I think it's like like I I've tried and do it in dollars, but it's like three and a half thousand pounds, maybe like five thousand dollars. So it so it is an expensive race. So would the other issue is you train. So I probably trained for for well over a year for Marathon de Sars and then it's over within a week, which I, I sort of I really I like the I do like I like the journey of the challenge. And so I'd probably be more inclined. I, I, no, I wouldn't do the Appalachian Trail again. The, <laughs> this, is a, this is a weird answer. I'm going back and forth. I love the Appalachian Trail. It was amazing. But I also suffered a little bit with claustrophobia afterwards because you spend a lot. Of, so it's also the Appalachian Trail is also known as the Green Tunnel. So you're spending a lot of time under under trees, walking through forests and walking in the woods. And it can get, I found it definitely towards the end, like quite claustrophobic. And so I needed, I went through a stage of not wanting to spend time in woods or be outdoors or be, or be in enclosed like spaces because I felt too enclosed and trapped doing it, which is, which is quite weird. And so I'd want to do something, I'd do, I'd do another trail. Like I'd love to do the Pacific Crest Trail. Like that would be, that would be absolutely amazing. I don't, that, that was probably a little bit of a yes, a little bit of a no. Like, I, no, I, I'd probably, yeah, I wouldn't do either of them again. I'd take the money that I'd spend on Marathon de Sars and go and do like a, a, another through hike, a longer through hike, but not time pressured. Can, on the Appalachian Trail, can you go a day or two without seeing anyone? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So in some of the more remote places you can, but it is, it's an incredibly popular trail and it is quite, there's lots of like day hikers and you can smell day hikers coming because as a through hiker, you very rarely shower or wash your clothes. And so I probably smelt quite funky, but what's weird is you can, you can smell like people's washing powder and perfume or 
even sometimes like the food from quite from quite far away sorry what was the question you asked me i just went off on a tangent <laughs> no 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 that was it no, i was just curious if you could go a day or two without seeing anyone on the trail and yeah, if that you, if that's lonely at all uh, not really is it no but i think i think it this does depend on the individual so i i am very I like spending time by myself. I really enjoy my own company. And I'm one of these people I've only just figured out sort of uh, relatively recently, like I'm, I'm very extroverted, but I'm also very introverted. So I literally, I'm happy to talk to anyone, go anywhere by myself. It's literally like not an issue. I will just, you know, carry on and chat, 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 chat. But then I also need this like downtime. And so for me, I found it incredibly therapeutic being able to walk and think and reflect and just have this amazing quality time with myself. And not everybody's going to be like that because I think sometimes it can pull up maybe dark thoughts or dark experiences or past traumas that you've had and you need to process. And, and sometimes it's not good for people to be by themselves, but I do think that it is a skill that if you can get comfortable with who you are, it's incredibly powerful. So I never felt I never felt lonely, like on that, on that experience. But it is also, you know, it, the, through hiking, there's this culture, there's these incredible people that you meet. There are, you know, a lot of people band together and create like, like trail families. People are friendly and welcoming. And even, you know, when you go stay in a hostel, you'll have, you know, connections with other people or when you go through town. So, you, you know, you do get social interactions. And if that was, weren't enough, the following year in 2018, you decide to uh, cycle over 4,000 kilometers, the uh, Pacific Coast Highway, PCH, from Vancouver to Cabo. Approximately how long did it take you to do that? So I started on September 10th, and I flew out of Cabo uh, sometime in December, so probably late December. But so there was there was no real time pressure. You, you could do it a lot faster than I did. So with my with my route down, definitely on the Pacific uh, Pacific Coast Highway, you could probably do that in four or five weeks, maybe. And then I, the second part of my journey was when I crossed over into Mexico. What I'd originally decided to do was to do the off-road section, like on the Baja Divide, but that basically ended up getting completely messed up and I had to go back onto the road. So I did finish it a lot quicker. So I maybe had like a week in Cabo at the end, which was a pretty nice thing to do just to recharge and, and, uh, relax sort of um, on the journey but the reason I ended up doing a cycling challenge was so I'd finished my masters at that point so I'd handed in my my dissertation but I was still struggling with like walking and I to be honest I was over hiking at that point I was like no never want to put on another backpack and I didn't want to sort of damage my body further but the one thing that I could do which didn't impact on my knee was cycling and so that's why the pacific coast highway was just sort of the perfect thing and plus the other thing it was on the coast so it was these big wide open spaces being next to an ocean which is what i needed so it was almost like the opposite of the appalachian trail so you know i wasn't hiking and i wasn't like enclosed in the woods i was out by the ocean and on a bike <laughs> so so but yeah and it, i mean an incredible experience and you know again an amazing opportunity i, I flew over 
ended up spending like a week in Vancouver. A friend came over to join me for that first week, visited like a secondhand bicycle shop, sort of walked in. I was like, hey, I'm going to be cycling to the Pacific Coast, Pacific Coast Highway. Do you have a, a bike that I can ride? You know, what options do you have? They were like, how much money have you got? And I was like, not a lot. So um, he sort of showed me like one corner of the room where these sort of like these rusty secondhand bikes were. And I was like, perfect. That's that that'll do. So he fixed up a bike for me, bought myself some panniers and then packed up and and headed on uh, headed on down Vancouver. I'd never I'd never cycled before properly. I'd never done like an overnight camping trip with the bike obviously I've done a lot of camping previously I was still pretty rusty like did I know how to change a tire probably not I don't think I did change a tire (laughs) on my on my my way down but you know a beautiful way to to see that part of the world like really really recommend it a a stunning stunning cycle and I hope everyone was nice to you in Canada Oh, I'll be, uh, I'm just like trying, trying to think like, yeah, everyone, everyone was love was lovely. Super lovely. Oh, good. Well, I think in 2019, you got your, your legs back because then you decided to walk the Camino Portugues, which is roughly 675 kilometers from Portugal to Spain. Okay. How long did that take? <laughs> that was, that was probably like four or four or five weeks, but that was, that was quite, um quite, well, quite an interesting story of how it came about because I had quite a lot of time at home and basically the the months before that I I'd finally been at home for enough time uh, to work with like the physio and so I was working like with a physio with a PT to sort out like my knee because my knee you know I've been to the doctors I've had like scans done I was really really starting to get very concerned about it and anyway this physio was amazing fixed my knee and I finally was like oh my god I can squat I can bend my leg like this is pretty epic and I've been speaking to uh, to a girl called Kat Davis and she'd been a guest on mine on the Tough Girl podcast uh, previously she she, she was like a big hiker and she just released this guidebook called the you know the Camino Portuguese and I knew the guidebook company because I'd interviewed like quite a few of their authors and it was just one of these really do you know when you're sometimes you're just feeling cheeky and I'd my backpack could actually what I'd done is I lost so much weight on the Appalachian Trail so you know in your hip belt you um you have to keep tightening up your hip belt and I just kept cutting off the straps and so basically there was like no straps on the hip belt because I was just very, very thin at, at the end. And when, <laughs> when, I, when I got back to like my normal size, the hip belt didn't work anymore because I needed new straps. And so I was, you know, I was quite cheeky and I think I'd reached out to Osprey and it's like, oh, you know, is it possible to get this replaced? And they came back and replaced my pack. And then they ended up sending me like this new backpack. And, and then I just thought, well, why don't I just ask like Cicero in the guidebook company? So I just sent them this email saying, look, would you be interested in doing a sponsored hike? This is what I do. I, I really love to share the journey, share it on the social media, film it, vlog it. And they came back. They were really positive. So this was sort of like my first like sponsored opportunity, um, which was, you know, incredible. So uh, one of the things that I like to do is sort of start challenges around my birthday, which is September 10th. And that's what I did. So I had a couple of days in Lisbon and then started walking on the Camino and following these yellow arrows, which point you in the direction uh, to head all the way up to. Oh, my God, I'm going to forget. It's Santiago de Costa. Costella all the way up in Spain 
and you know it was a, it was a really stunning beautiful journey great weather at that time of year not massively busy when you do it in September October again you get to meet lots of other pilgrims there are these wonderful places to stay called alberges which are very very cheap like five or six euros so it's it's a very reasonably priced experience to go on Plus, because you can stay in the alberges, you don't need to carry a tent. You don't need to carry or like your, you know, your thermo rest or your. I, I, did, I think I did take my sleeping bag. But you know, you can do it quite lightweight, and you're always going through lots of towns and villages, lots of little cafes, uh, lots of places to stop for lunch. So you know, you weren't isolated like you were on, for example, like the Appalachian Trail. So it was easy to get resupply. You weren't needing to carry that much. So it was almost like a very civilized way to get back into hiking because I was still very very nervous about my my left knee would it be able to cope carrying a backpack again and and it did it it coped super well and it was you know it was beautiful passing through you know world heritage sites and seeing like the Templar Castle in Tomar and visiting like the old towns of Porto and Santiago and incredible like Roman ruins and there was these ancient bridges and fabulous beaches so yeah it was just wonderful how that um, how that opportunity came came about really. Considering all the time that you've spent outdoors you know the weeks and months I was just curious if you ever had any close or scary encounters with an animal. Oh um, bears and snakes. <laughs> okay. Uh, the, the bears on the other I still remember it because I there was this beautiful gorgeous like brown fluffy like a big old like well a little like cute little teddy bear because it was a baby bear ran in front of me and I still remember the first thought that went through my head was like oh my god that is just like the cutest like I'm so lucky to have seen this little little baby bear wait, wait that was and your they, first thought that was my first thought followed Uh by a split second later (laughs) when it was like hold on where's mama bear and then it was like oh my god head up look around and I could see mama bear was like maybe like 20 meters ahead of me and then I spotted another baby bear so there's two cubs and the mum, and the two cubs were like climbing like this so after that the little bear ran in front of me ran up to the mum, and they started climbing a tree and I was just like so I had my poles and I started just banging on my poles and walking backwards and just banging on my pot, making noise. But I'm, I suppose I'm quite relaxed in the, or I try, I try to be quite relaxed because I try and remember, look, you know, this is their environment. I'm, I'm walking in their space. So they are doing their thing, living their best lives. I'll try not to um, intrude. I mean, obviously the other animals that you encounter are things like mice, which are just awful when they're running all over you. Uh, mosquitoes, oh, little, little biting flies. Like they are just horrendous. Uh, yeah but otherwise I think that's about it like a snake but that was that was fine I did film me running past it which is actually quite amusing if you if you find that episode on my on my vlog because it's like I would go to the left and the snake would go to the left and I'd be like oh no and then I'd go to the right and the snake would go to the right and you're just like I just you know sometimes you just can't handle it and I do remember I was sat at a shelter I just arrived sat at a shelter I'd sat down I still had my pack on and I just, you know, I was just like taking a couple of breaths, having some water and something fell from the roof. And I looked down. Ugh, it makes me gag now. And it was like a, a baby mouse, which was like, like dead. It was just, oh, it was, oh, it was awful. And uh, so I thought, right, I'm definitely not staying there. And that's why I quite like company in my tent. <laughs> <laughs> and then and at the end of 2019, you finished out the year by walking the, is it pronounced Lycian way in Turkey? 
Yeah, the Lyceum way. So the the girl who wrote the Camino Portuguese, like Kat Davis, she invited me out. She we've been in contact through WhatsApp. She was also on a Camino. We were hoping to to meet up, and I've been really organised with my podcast. So I have podcasts coming out every Tuesday and Thursday, but I preload a lot of my content. And I preloaded all my content. I had like one speaking gig I needed to to do. And then I was free basically until the end of the year. And Kat had reached out and said, oh, you know, look, would you fancy walking the Lycian Way in Turkey? And my first thought was, well, yes, obviously I want to go walk. It sounds amazing. My second thought was, I've never heard of the Lycian Way. I need to go and Google it to see where it is, to see what's, uh, to see what's involved. So it's based over in southern Turkey from Fethiad to Antalya. It's around 509 kilometers. It's around roughly a 29 day walk, but we ended up doing like 23, 24 days. And it has been named by the Sunday Times as one of the world's most or one of the top 10 most beautiful long distance hikes in the world. And, you know, it was absolutely beautiful, really hard going. Like I'm pleased I'd done the Camino before. So I had like my hiking legs on because if I'd gone straight to that, it would have been brutal. But because, like, you know, I've been wearing a pack for, you know, six weeks it was it was really it was really great but again by the coast incredible views i mean a a lot more complicated on the navigation uh it, it wasn't quite as well way marked as the as the camino routes were but just this incredible opportunity and, and uh, you know uh, cicero didn't actually have a guidebook on um, on the Lycian Way, but I reached out to another company I'd worked with previously called Commute. And then there was also another company called Waterwell and both wanted to sponsor and get involved, which is obviously, you know, super amazing because that way, you know, at least your, your costs are being covered and you're able to make a little bit of money from, from being on that experience. So, you know, I've, I've vlogged that experience as well, you know, heading out to Turkey, what it was like being out there, some of the different sites that we saw. And actually one of the highlights, I don't know if you've heard of this, have you heard of Rosie Swale Pope? No. No. Oh, well, let me tell you about Rosie. So, uh, Rosie Spell Pope is this incredible woman. She's she, well, she's actually she's now 75. But I, when I met her, she was 73 or 74 years young. And she was running from Brighton in the UK to over to Nepal. Um, Kathmandu in Nepal. And she was actually at Istanbul. And we were getting our flight out of Istanbul. And so we managed to meet up with Rosie Swale Pope, who has previously in her 50s had run around the world. It taken her five years. So an absolute hero, an absolute legend. She's got an amazing book as well called Running My Little Run Around the World. So, you know, end, so the end of that trip was meeting up with Rosie. So, yeah, it was really, really beautiful, you know, a perfect way to spend. I think we we're out there for maybe three, four weeks, something like that. So, yeah, just again, sort of an incredible experience. You know, it was amazing to head out to, to Turkey. I'd never been to Turkey before spend time in Istanbul spend time with Kat meet Rosie and visit like some of these ruins so you'd be up climbing these mountains and there'd be some pretty big scrambles and then you just come across like these like amphitheaters all these old tombs stuff which in the, the UK or America would be you know like fenced off and protected but in Turkey they haven't quite got around to that so you would just be like through hiking and there'd just be these like these sites which you just honestly can't believe so yeah it was beautiful it was really really stunning uh stunning hike yeah i spent uh, a year working in turkey i had never heard of uh, the lycian way but your uh, your videos when i watched because you you know you've logged a lot of a lot of that trail made me uh, homesick because turkey is so beautiful yeah and like you said you can just touch the ruins you know these beautiful roman amphitheaters uh, yeah. are out there so uh, yeah i really enjoyed the, your videos on turkey because it made me miss it even more that country oh thank you and and then in 2020 wow okay well i'm also a big fan of australia i, I worked for a year in australia so i'm i never got it 
to get over to Tasmania, but you got to walk the overland track. Uh, that one I had heard of, so I'm very jealous. If you can tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, so like I mentioned earlier, so my brother lives in Melbourne and he's got like a, you know, he, he's married uh, with, with two children. And because of what I do, I can work anywhere in the world as long as I have my laptop and I'm, I'm not good in the cold weather. So I try and spend at least three months of the year over in, over in Australia. You know, I'm very fortunate. I, I get to live with my brother. I don't need to pay rent. I don't need to pay for food. I will help obviously look after the children and walk the dogs. And, um, and sister in, um, the guidebook company that I that I worked with previously, they were launching into the sort of Australian market with the with their uh, with their overland track book, and and obviously I was over there, and and the perfect time to walk the overland track is like you know February or January January February March time. And it was just one of those things. And you know, my second, so my largest audience is America, uh, well, UK, then America, and then Australia. And so it just worked out really well because I've got, you know, a large Australian following. And so they sent me the guidebook. We agreed that I would go and hike, do the hike, follow the guidebook and vlog it and share it. So again, like another sponsored hike. And it was just, you know, an incredible walk. Very, very different from all of the other walks that I've done because you are walking through, it's very controlled I would say because there are you can't wild camp when you're out there you've got to stay in set set accommodation you need to book a time slot so they have so many people starting every day you have to now I'm trying to remember if you have to pay for I think you do have to pay for your ticket during certain parts of the year especially when it's when it's uh, when, when it's busy they do have uh, rangers out there as well checking on you because the weather can be quite volatile over there but I mean beautiful boardwalks incredible animals these amazing little offshoots and different walks that you can do just uh, breathtaking there's there's also oh you know you asked me about animals I also remember the leech so I think I was walking in February February 14th and the reason I remember that is is because people had told me about these leeches and you had to be careful and I was walking along and I felt something like just something on my ankle which just felt like a little bit funny and I remember looking down and there's this great big black leech sucking on my attached to my skin having a whale of a time and it's just oh it's just awful and you've got to be quite careful how you get leeches off like you've got you don't just like pull them off you've got to um do you have to burn them off I'm trying to I'm I'm trying to remember how you how I got the leech off I think yeah did I burn them off or no sorry I didn't burn it off because actually I couldn't do that to a leech basically you wait until they get full and then they'll fall off <laughs> so you just let the leech continue sucking which is what I did and then it then I felt like it like it sort of drop off my my ankle and then I bent down and like picked it out of my shoe and like well, threw it away but yeah absolutely stunning to 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 hike the overland track I mean really beautiful amazing amazing weather incredible mountains uh, incredible people beautiful waterfalls uh, to walk past as well the path is very well trodden sometimes it's not a path it's a lot of wooden foot not footbridges like the planks that you walk on but very very stunning scenery and what was really nice at the end was there's like a, a big lake and most people I actually walked around the lake but you can also get like a little a little ferry so you can sort of miss out like the final five or six miles or so I didn't I I carried on I walked the full way but yeah highly recommend if you're out in that neck of the woods to to go and hike the overland track or or if you want to see more about it then I have vlogged it as well so well worth it well worth yes. watching those vlogs I think there's only like nine or ten of them yeah ten vlogs yes oh yeah we'll definitely be be posting all the links and i highly encourage the listeners to check out her videos uh, plus you're also very funny too i find <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> so since part of this podcast dabbles in 
and uh, travel and tourism, I, I realized that you worked as a chalet host in Switzerland for six months. So I have no idea what that is, but I'm sure my listeners would love to know what uh, what is a chalet host? What is a chalet host? Great question. So chalet hosting is, it's when you go and spend six months out in the mountain. You work okay. incredibly long, uh, incredibly long hours. You do cooking. You basically do all the cooking and all the cleaning. And in return for that, you end up getting a ski pass for the season, which are generally pretty expensive. And you get your food and accommodation and everything paid for. So it means that you can spend like six months in the mountains and get to ski all the time and hang out and have an awesome time. But it does mean that you are you only get one day off a week and that you are cooking so I was cooking you know like full English breakfast every day making a cake afternoon tea and whipping up uh, three course meals in the evening and dessert as well so it's pretty full-on you're sort of like the you know you're like a hostess so you're entertaining everybody in the evenings and then you could obviously go off and party and, and carry on but I basically decided so after I left my my corporate job I, I, I sort of, I, I spent quite a bit of time over in South America and Australia and I went to Africa and climbed Kilimanjaro, but I knew I wanted to get a little bit better at skiing and I wasn't going to get better at skiing by just going on like a one week ski holiday every, every year. I needed to really commit to, to taking the time out, but equally, you know, to spend six months skiing in Switzerland and Verbier is hugely expensive. And so I couldn't afford to do that. And so what I did instead was, was getting this job as a chalet host, which meant that you know, my accommodations paid for, my ski pass, my ski hire, that's all covered. And in return, I just need to do this, this, this cooking and cleaning. So I was probably one of the oldest chalet hosts at like 32. And I was with all these sort of 19, 18, 19 year old girls who were, who were also sort of chalet hosting. And to be honest, we had an, we had an absolute blast. I mean, but it's, it's such, such hard work. Like, I mean, and I, it's really put me off cooking ever since. And I was going to say, and cleaning. I mean, obviously I do clean, but probably not as much as I had to when I was chalet hosting and looking after 10 people all the time. But it, it's just, a, you know, it's a great way to, um, to, to travel and to see parts of the world and not have to pay for it to actually earn some money while you're doing it. You don't earn a lot, but you'll learn sort of pocket money enough to pay for a few drinks and a few night outs here and there. That sounds very similar to Club Med. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well actually a lot ups. of people do yeah they do they do like the season so they'll do the winter season and then they'll head down to the med and do like the summer the summer season but it's not something that I wanted to continue uh, doing but it's, it's a great experience and I definitely recommend people if they have the time to to go and do it at some point well I definitely recommend to my listeners to check out your podcast the tough girl podcast if you really want to listen to inspirational women and their stories it's it's amazing don't worry I'm posting all the links and especially your YouTube channel so Sarah Williams well I cannot thank you enough for coming on this has been very special for me I really thank you <laughs> oh no thank you so much thank you for having me on and allowing me to to chat about my loves and my passions and my interests and and I hope it's inspired your listeners to think about what their next challenge could be their next adventure um, could be and hopefully take their first step towards going after it and achieving their dreams. Thank you so much. Well said, well put. Everyone, that was Sarah Williams. I want to thank you once again, and we'll see you all next week. Bye.